side of the congregation remained seated. So he thought, well, perhaps I should have invited us to stand. Maybe that's the tradition of the church. And so next Sunday, I'll do that. But he went forward a little bit confused, but understanding, little mistake. Next Sunday arrives. Would everyone please stand to pray? Problem is, same result. This side of the congregation stood to pray. This side of the congregation remained seated. The difference was, everyone on this side of the room was, they decided to give him some knowing looks like, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Those on the other side of the group, based on his decision, began to grumble and kind of look at him sideways and weren't happy. So he wondered, okay, now I'm totally confused. What's going on here? He didn't know what to think. So the only thing he knew to do was go back to the previous pastor who had been there for many years and find out what is the real tradition of this church when it comes to standing or sitting for prayer. So he sat in with the elderly pastor who had been there for 30 years or so, I believe, as, as the story goes. He said, so I'm, I'm confused about what the tradition of the church is and standing during prayer. And so he asked him, so is it the tradition of the church to stand during prayer? The pastor stroked his beard and looked around and said, no, that was never the tradition of the church. He thought he had his answer. But just to be very clear, he asked him, so what you're telling me then is that it was the tradition of the church to remain seated during the prayer. The pastor stroked his beard and thought a little bit and said, nope, that was never the tradition of the church. Well, at this point, the pastor's just beside himself. He throws his hands in the air and goes, what in the world? How are we ever going to really engage God together in prayer if we can't decide on whether we should sit or stand? Sit or stand we're never going to, to be able to solve this or encounter God's presence. To that, the old preacher smiled and he looked at him and says, that's the tradition of the church. <laughs> You're in a similar moment in the text here. There's this long, important tradition in the community that has been valued. And in a nutshell, this generation of elders had established rituals and, and things that were meaningful for them. And one of those was washing hands and washing utensils and being sure that those were clean. But it was more than that. It was, it was a spiritual ritual meant to remind them of, of, of their own sins and how God can cleanse and, and forgive them and offer grace, even in their, the dirtiness of their lives, you might say. And they were put in place to teach us on a regular and a consistent basis. Every time you wash your hands, you, you remember of God's mercy. And your need for it. It's a beautiful tradition if you ask me. I remember going to Jerusalem and, and going to the Wailing Wall to pray where so many had gone before me. And before you make your way to the Wailing Wall, you stop and you wash your hands ritually. Reminded of exactly this tradition of, of being cleansed and knowing God's grace and confessing your sins before approaching the wall to pray. So I approached that wall because of that with this sense of confession and, and knowing that God's presence. I went up there with my little bitty piece of paper, my small prayer written on it, crumbled up so I could stick it in the crack in that wall like so many before me had done. All of that, just a rich tradition and ritual to be a part of, was, it was sacred for me. I'll never forget that. It even started to rain just so lightly as I stood there. Now, given the importance of the tradition of washing hands, 
It's no surprise that when Jesus' disciples were walking and eating without washing their hands, that someone took notice. One just didn't do that. So they're concerned, and they, and they go to Jesus, expressing their concerns that his disciples aren't, well, they're not following along with the program. And it seems as though they wanted to put Jesus on the spot, maybe kind of show him you're not being the rabbi, the teacher that you need to be. And, and Jesus' response is sharp, and it's clear. He rebukes them and calls them hypocrites. Now, I'm going to suggest that Jesus was not calling the act of washing hands or the cleanliness rituals as hypocritical. I can only guess that these rituals were just as important to him, knowing how he was raised. In fact, on the night before he died, he used the ritual of Passover to teach who he was and what it meant and what his mission was about. Now, what Jesus is concerned about here is the mistake of forgetting what these rituals were for in the first place. He's calling them hypocrites, pointing out that the mistake they're making is not considering the condition of their own hearts, not paying attention to their own need for God's grace and mercy. Now, I'm going to guess that if you and I took inventory of the rituals that you and I are familiar with, the traditions all of them, whatever that may be for you this morning, I'm going to guess that sometimes we may allow them to lose their meaning. Sometimes we can become guardians of what we do and not thinking about what they're meant to teach us or shape us to be. Maybe you like that congregation split over whether or not they should sit or stand during a prayer. We too can forget what the ritual is meant for us and how we're to approach them. And when this happens, I guess we can forget the purpose and, and it gets in the way of helping us to relate with God and one another even. And once more, when we encounter those who perhaps don't appreciate our customs, our rituals, our, and understanding and worshiping God as we do, maybe we put a little barrier between us and them because of that. Now, I don't know if the story I heard about the two preachers is actually true, but it's truthful enough. We can indeed allow our sense of religion and ritual to paint the way that we understand God and, and one another. And the Pharisees taking Jesus to task, they're guilty of this. And the idea that Jesus did not value these traditions as much as they did, it placed a barrier between them and Jesus. And we live in a day where the traditions and the customs of the church have far less impact on our culture than it ever has. The world no longer, for example, treats Sunday as the Sabbath as, as perhaps we're accustomed to. And Heck, I would say that many church folks don't know it either. I grew up understanding blue laws. I didn't even grow up in the church, but man, I love Sundays. I love the day that there's no work, there's no rest. I mean, there's nothing but rest and play. Wish I'd have known exactly more about what it meant for me as faith as it came to be that, but I still benefited from that in my own childhood. And I didn't even know why. I vividly remember the year that I gave up my car for Lent. And it was difficult. I lived in a, in a city and I wanted to understand what it's like to get around and to get to work and to get to the grocery with, without my car and, and having to rely on other things to do that. 
And in fact, I, the first Sunday I wore my dress shoes and walking home in dress shoes in four miles gave me a blister, so I preached in tennis shoes for the rest of Lent so that my feet didn't hurt. One day after church, I decided to walk through the park that's next to my house, and we had a decent crowd that Sunday, but there were pews open everywhere. When I went through the park, there was hundreds of people there. They're playing games, they're having picnics, there were teams that were practicing. It was unbelievable how many people were in that park, and my first response was to be disappointed. Yes, I looked out there, how many of my church members are out here today? They didn't come to church today. I wanted everyone there to appreciate the Sabbath and the good news of Christ, but here they were. But as I was having my pity party, I noticed one more thing, that, Lord, they looked happier than I felt in that moment. They looked happier than the congregation I stood in front of that morning. So do it that what you will, but I still conflicted by that day and how I went home feeling about it. And now looking back, it was like I was wanting to walk up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, do you see all these disciples out here playing around and and not in church today? They're just not getting with the program. And then I read today's story, and Jesus, well, he says, Craig, let's talk about that. (laughs) Let's talk about how that makes you feel, and I need to know what's really got you so worried about it. Are you worried that they didn't hear the gospel this morning? Are you worried they weren't in your pews? Do you want them to come to you? Or do you need to go to them? Well, I know how I went home that day. You see, these disciples, they were not more or less faithful for having dirty hands as they ate on the Sabbath. In that young preacher's church, no one was more or less faithful than Anybody else because they sat or they stood during the prayer time. These rituals and traditions without the spiritual transformation that, are, that we're meant to engage in, they're in vain to us. And when we no longer allow them to draw us to tend to our hearts and to look at our own souls and with God's presence and love others where they are, we honor nothing. Jesus evokes the words from the prophets and he's speaking to the religious folks. Speaking to me in that park that day, this people honors me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. He's saying, I hear, that we will never be an effective witness to the world only by what comes out of our mouth. Not only by the way in which we worship or practice our traditions or show up every Sunday for worship. The church and our traditions and our customs and our lifetime, it may never have the influence it had once before on the culture around us. But we must still have hearts that are near to God. And based on these words from Jesus, our greatest witness will be measured by the extent for which we are willing to search our hearts. To what extent we will give God our hearts now in all these moments. And then ultimately, in order to relate with the world at heart level. And I think this has always been true. A gentleman came to one of my churches I served years ago. And it happened to be a communion Sunday. And we were serving communion. By the way, we served intinction one month and we kneeled the next month because we all couldn't agree on which kind of communion we should take. True story. I love you all if you're watching me. But this Sunday, we were taking communion by intinction, which is holding the cup and, and dipping the bread and, 
and then going to your seat. And as people came forward, it was business as usual. Programs going along just fine. And then one man who had come I'd never seen before and haven't seen since walked up to the cup. But instead of taking this cup and dipping it, he, he ate it. And then with both hands, he grabbed the chalice. <laughs> and he held on to it. And this not-so-subtle back and forth ensued. And, and I, I'm, I know that some juice had to have come flying out of that cup. And I remember the server looking at me like, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't know. We're both froze. And so they're back and forth. And in that moment, I feel like what it feels like to be the church some days. There's this pull and this push of what we should and what is right and what's needed. He was determined to receive communion, obviously, because he came from a tradition that that's how we do it. He couldn't think of receiving communion any other way than by drinking from the cup. We, too, have probably been in that situation, feeling out of sorts, and I'm not sure I know how they're worshiping God. This is different. It's confusing to me. I've been there. But the power of that moment for me was how my server finally responded. She could have withheld it. She could have won the battle. She could have told him to stop and explained to him. She could have embarrassed him in front of everybody. But then she noticed that he was the last person in line. And she conceded. And she just gave him the cup. And he drank from the cup. He gave it back to her. He made the sign of the cross. And he went to be seated. She chose to treat him with dignity. And she realized it was far more important to let him receive communion in that way than it was to follow the protocol of the church of that day. We can have a lot of symbolic chalices about what we think in carrying the image of Christ really is supposed to look like. But if we can let go of them from time to time, if we can see that there are other ways to understand and relate and other rituals that we might be a part of, we might begin to connect to one another at heart level and maybe God even more so. Now for me, what if instead of that day I was brooding over how many people didn't come to church, what if I said, hey, you know what, maybe we need to start a Bible study or church service on Sunday right here and invite folks to join us. What if I'd done that? What if we discovered that the church is not only what happens on that one hour on Sunday that we gather that's tradition to us? And what I really love about that back and forth chalice tug of war is after drinking the cup and giving that cup back, what I saw was a reciprocal relationship that I think the body of Christ must model as well. I have preached and I have led worship standing in front of choirs and in front of praise bands. And I can tell you that church is not a this or that. It's a this and that. But I'm not talking about worship style today. I'm talking about retaining and sometimes regaining a renewed understanding of everything we do. Whether it be worship or the rituals that we do. Every act of worship in this place today matters. From postlude to prelude, from, the, from getting the bulletin to the handshake as you leave, from welcoming a new member in the church today, every step of it matters. Nothing is wasted. And at the heart of today's message is the idea that God is more concerned with who we are in here 
than what comes out of us in the ceremonies that we observe. We can have clean hands or dirty hands and be as Christian as the next person. We can pray standing up or sitting down and be as Christian as anybody else. We can disagree on what is the best or the most right ritual or custom we have and still be Christians with one another. We can worship and we can learn in sanctuaries, online, in parking lots, in city parks. I pray hopefully soon in living rooms. Wherever we are, God can meet us there because that's what God does. Even now, wherever you are, God is among us. Now it's up to us whether or not that will be the case that we will owe God to change us in those moments. That's where we live. So may it always be that what lies in our hearts counts the most. And may it always be that we hold fast to the truth that God is among us wherever we may be. Because if we do, we can do some really, really amazing things in the name of Christ. And today, Debbie Brinkley is going to join this church, and we're going to invite her to come and celebrate this church today and celebrate her time with us as well. And Debbie, I'm thankful that you've chosen us as your congregation, as you transform from another Methodist church. So if you would, I'm going to meet you forward, and we're going to conclude this time today by welcoming you today. So I'll meet you right here in just a moment.